This is a Soulfire production. What is up, everybody? Welcome back. Connor Wanders coming at you today. It's been a crazy week. I know a lot of you out there are parents or thinking about thinking about becoming parents or may become parents at some time. You may become impregnated and slash have child. So we're dealing with a, uh, a bit of a sleep regression. It's a term I didn't know until recently. But um, and I'm not really actually sure what it is. I don't know if anyone actually knows what it is. It's just a word like Mercury being in retrograde. Nobody knows what that means. No one knows, but it seems to have an impact on things somehow. And that's what we have now with this sleep regression, four month sleep regression. And it's been a weird week. I was actually about to, about to hit record. And then I had to jump on board and, uh, walk my daughter around the yard because she did not want to sleep. And I was working out and that got cut in half today, but that's okay. It's okay. Because principles, right? <laughs> oh, man, it's great, though. I've been dadding super hard lately. It's been really great. We didn't have our nanny here today. We have a nanny during the week, Monday through Thursday, usually. She's not here today. She's out of town. But, you know, I will say this. Like, we have her 10 to 3, Monday through Thursday. And it's an expense, right? You just, that goes without saying. Um, for those of you out there that are parents that do it without help, right, that, like, raise your kids at home, and even do other things. I don't know how you would do other things. It is, I commend you. Like, we're very present parents, and our nanny even says so. She's like, you're probably the most present parents of anybody. Because when somebody hires a nanny, you think you just, like, offload it. We're at home. We work from home, both of us. I'm in the studio out in the yard right now. Um, so we're there, and if something happens, if she has a fit, we can jump in and do whatever. It's not the It's not the nanny's responsibility to raise our kid. It's more or less that she just watches her while we're around doing other stuff and running errands and doing different things. So, uh, but she's fantastic. She's so great, but it's but the parents out there that are doing it, just raw dogging this thing and just Rick rolling solo. Godspeed, dude. Y'all are something special. I can imagine a friend of mine, uh, a couple of friends of mine, actually Amanda and Jesse, I'll give them a shout out. They just had their third kid. So they have uh, an older toddler, one that's just become toddler status, I believe. And then this baby girl. So two older boys who are wild, feral children who are hilarious and awesome. And then they have finally, I, I was rooting for a girl for their third one. And Amanda takes care of those kids. That's Amanda's job. She's just like, she is full on mom. And she has embodied momness in a way that has really impressed me. And I have a ton of respect for. Her. And also, goddamn Amanda. Like, <laughs> I, can't, I cannot even imagine. Because toddler, especially little boy toddlers, like, we're going to have a boy next. We get to do IVF. We're gonna. That's that's the move. I'm excited. Uh, I'm like kind of nervous after having a girl. I just want to have like another girl for some reason. I don't know if anybody else has had that experience. Um, but yeah, like little boys, it's like they're so funny. It's like they'll just go like shit in the corner. <laughs> like it's just so crazy. They just do the wildest shit. Like I'll just see. She'll just send us a text or Instagram stories or whatever. And I'm just like, I I just I'm excited for that stage because I think I'll do I'll I'll rise to the occasion in that stage. But it's like. Toddler boys, man. It's just, it's, I used to babysit a friend of mine's kid. And when he turned three years old, I was like, this is far outside my realm of expertise. Like, I have no idea how to handle a three-year-old that's not my child. Like, it was it just it was these feral kids. I have friends that have feral children. My children will be feral children. They'll just be running around, 
shoeless, dirty, knots in their hair. It just is that's that that's the way, in my opinion, kids should live. So when I say feral, I mean that as a compliment. Um, but yeah, it's just crazy. It's just so fun. It's also just the fucking best. Like it is absolutely. I I know I say this a lot. And I'm not don't not sure if any of you even care, but it's just. I remember the first time I held her, I was like, man, I wish more people could feel this feeling, you know, and being ready for it. People want to have kids, you know, they, they bring up how important it is to have kids really young. I mean, I'm, we had Roe, we were both 35, right? So I think being ready for it actually helped a lot. You know what I mean? There's a lot of preparation. I'm actually reading this book right now uh, from Dan Siegel, who I've brought up on the show before. Highly recommend. Um, I'm actually going to be putting together a book list for the website that's almost finished right now. Uh, speaking of babies, the person who designs our websites for Soulfire um, decided to go into labor a month early. Baby's great. Everything's good. Everybody's healthy. But it was really inconvenient for my uh, website release. <laughs> That'll be coming soon. But I'm going to have a, uh, a book list on there for you guys to download that will have uh, all the um, like da- parenting books that I think are very helpful. One of them is Parenting from the Inside Out. Uh, and I can't remember if I've actually read it or not. Uh, I listened to a bunch of podcasts about it and, and have gotten this information. But it's really important. He talks about reconciling your own childhood experiences or your own childhood experience, reconciling that within yourself, integrating that into your life. He talks a lot about integration and integration is actually one of the principles that Kelly and I talked about before Roe was born, before I kind of went on this whole principle kick, even though it was, I went on that kick because it's been a part of my life for a long time, but talked about like, you know, what, what, what do we want to really focus on when it comes to raising our kid? And we didn't know if it was a boy or a girl at this time. This is kind of at month eight. Um, And to me, integration was a big part of that, like integrating positive experiences, negative experiences, whatever you want to, however you want to explain things, right? Because stuff will happen, right? You'll get hurt. You know, God forbid there's like a fender bender or something, something weird, just some weird things that just happen in life, right? That, that can be traumatic. Like that's where trauma gets overused, but things can happen. You have kids, you know, that like things will fall down. They'll hurt themselves in some way or something. They'll see something or whatever. But the most important thing is not to, move, try to move past those things. It's, it's to really integrate those experiences into a child's life. And to do that, we have to integrate our own past. And I remember when I was, you know, in my mid twenties and me and my mom were just like not on good terms at all. And it was rough. And she would get so frustrated because having had a parent who, and you guys know a lot of the boomer parents where it's like, my mom's not a boomer. She's pretty close, but not quite. <laughs> I think she's a gen X. Yeah. Whatever that is. Um, but you would bring up something from the past, right? That wasn't good. And they'd be like, well, I guess I missed the worst mom that's ever lived. Well, you know, that whole song and dance of like, it's a, you're, I'm the victim now. And parents do that, which is parents. If you're doing that, everybody out there is a parent that does that. It's fucking stop. Cause it's childish and immature and unhelpful. But a lot of times it's like, I, what I was trying to get at was wanting to understand my life a little better through somebody who was there for some of it and the whys and hows and all these kind of things really important. It's really important that you do that. If you don't have your parents around, you still can make an attempt to do those kind of things. Like understand how that influenced who you are today, why, in what ways are positive, what ways are negative. A lot of times really hard things can make us better people. Like there's it's not a value judgment. Sometimes really challenging things can make us a little bit um, more challenged in the current reality. But it's really important to integrate that experience in. And I think that that's something that I spent a lot of time and I've used a lot of psychedelics to um, to get to. And I think having done that before having a kid was actually really helpful, but not to say that you can't do it. If you're already a parent, this is just a thing that you can, you don't, even if you don't want to have kids, it's still an, a positive thing to do to understand yourself at a, at a deeper level. But yeah, just rambling. Usually when I um, sit down to do this, I have some notes on what I want to talk about before the show, but 
I didn't today because I couldn't think of anything to say. So I'm just going to say what's on my mind, which is what's happening right now. So yeah, it's interesting. I, um, I gave Ro the uh, handle of a golf club for the first time today. So today was really the first day of the rest of her life. As far as that goes, she sat and, uh, she was fussy. So I just put her in her little bouncer and hit some golf balls. She thought that was quite entertaining. Um, so that's good. That's a good sign because she's going to be redefining women's golf. Not that I have unrealistic expectations for her, but she will most likely be the first female on tour to average over 300 yards off the tee. You know, it just is what it is. I hope nobody does that between now and then because that's for her. You know what I'm saying? That's something they'll bring up when they induct her into the, uh, into the golf hall of fame. Really? Not that I have unrealistic expectations or <laughs> anything, anything like, like that. No, but I am really excited. And it's cool. It's like being, I get excited. People are like, well, it's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of pressure. And it's not pressure. It's just, I have things that I want to introduce my kid to. You know, I think everybody who has kids knows that whether it's like hunting or golf or working out, like just stuff that I enjoy doing. That'll be really fun to do with your kids that you can do for a long time and kind of I mean, still those values in a certain way. It's really exciting really is. But today, and I know guys, we've taken kind of a step away from politics specifically. Um, and that's been good. Get a lot of good feedback. The audience is growing again, which just feels good. It feels like there's progress. As we've talked about, like mental health for men oftentimes is, is correlated with progress. And I feel like there's progress being made, which is feels really nice. So, um, shouts to me (laughs) and you guys for for helping that change go through seamlessly. But we are going to talk a lot about, um, Robert Kennedy Jr. today on the podcast because I think it's important. Uh, it's something I actually, I don't think I have ever had this much hope for a political candidate. And, and being someone who is a uh, Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016, well, 2015, 2016, and 2020, um, I think that time is kind of, the time for that kind of rhetoric has passed. Uh, Marianne Williamson it seems to be kind of trying to gin up that old magic. And I think she may with the with the young kids, but I don't think that that's really going to, that, that rhetoric isn't really going to land. And Bernie has kind of clowned himself, to be honest. Like him coming out and endorsing Joe Biden, like the day he announced was, it was cunty and, and it was cowardice. Like it's very clear that Robert Kennedy, Kennedy Jr. aligns more with his values and what he's spoken about. And it seems like he's just gotten old and uh, weak. And it's sad for me to see that. But, you know, I don't hold politicians in any kind of... um celebrity mythic creature like status. And that's what's happened. Uh, I think he's, he's kind of settled for getting done what he can get done uh, within the establishment. And that's, that is what it is. Um, that being said, this feels quite different for me. Uh, maybe more now because I am um, more frustrated, uh, more passionate as you guys have seen. I'm gonna, and I'm going to try not to get super heated and just stay calm with this stuff. And, we are going to do as best we can to bring around like what you, what this means for you in your actual life. Because as we've talked about on the show and we will continue to talk about the focus that you need to have is in yourself, your families and your communities where you can have an impact leading by example. That's the key, right? That being said, I think it's really important when we, when we have an opportunity to maybe shift culture, um, shift centralized power in a way that is beneficial to us that we take that because that's going to give us, more bandwidth to impact our communities, in my opinion. You know, you may say, well, it's the it's still Democrats and Republicans, and yeah, I get I get that, yeah. But that's the game we have to play within right now. And I'm curious if that would be if Robert Kennedy Jr. was successful, which is a you know, it's a reach. It's an uphill battle for sure. But if there would be an opening to 
kind of um, restructure and in many ways undermine the current establishment as it exists. And I think for a lot of us that have this kind of skepticism of centralized authority, that that could be really good, right? And they could shake his things up and maybe even, I mean, even having him go around the DNC, right? And I think that Trump did this. He kind of, whereas I think Trump kind of like bull in a China shopped his way through the RNC, which was good for everybody really in a certain way because it, it, it undermined that institution. He undermined the RNC. He has the RNC by the ball still. And that's powerful. And I think RFK can kind of do a similar thing. I don't think he would, he would probably do it with a little bit more uh, tact um, and calculation than Trump, but who knows, right? We'll see. What I can tell you right now is that his polling numbers at this stage in the race are much better than what Bernie's were at the same time. And that says a lot. And they will not want to have debates, and they will laugh at him. And they, they've, they've already done that on Morning Joe. They, uh, Breaking Points played a clip. I'm not going to play it here yet. But kind of laughing, laughing off the idea of debates, um, laughing off Robert F. Kennedy, all while pretending to uphold some kind of democracy. And I think it's important for us because a lot of us may feel disillusioned at this point over the last five years or so, uh, maybe the last seven, eight years, um, disillusioned by the result of our efforts and that can put us in a really dark place. Um, I've been there. You guys know that you guys have seen that, felt that, heard that. Um, now I know that my focus is in what I can change here, right? In my own life, family, community, but I also have this platform. And I think if I can do something that would lead to more people recognizing this, even changing the conversation. I mean, Andrew Yang never pulled more than 2% or 3% at the most. And he still changed the conversation, right? Bernie very much changed the conversation, whatever I have to say about him now. At the time, he changed the conversation. If Robert F. Kennedy can change the conversation and focus on some things that we're going to put out here, that'd be really great. And I really appreciate the guys over at the All In Podcast uh, for having him on. He's been on really big shows as of late. He's going the alternative media route, which I think is the right route for him. I really wish I could go work on his campaign and help him with a little bit of message, messaging here and there. But what he's focusing on and his principles and his temperament around them, I find really hopeful. Um, so we're going to jump into this. We're going to start off with spending deficit. And I, I've heard this before, and I want to put this out there before we even get into this. My stepdad, actually, I was like, you guys need to go out in the primary, in the Democratic primary. In my small town of Graham, Texas, right? Um, it's not that hard to go vote. There's not that many people. Just go to the courthouse, do your thing, whatever. Um, go out in the Democratic primary. Vote for Robert F. Kennedy, right? Told my stepdad, my mom that. My mom will do it because she cares, and I can talk her into doing it. My granddad, or my stepdad's like, but he's a he's a Democrat, and I was like, yeah, and Trump's a Republican. Who fucking cares, right? I don't think the I don't think the uh, party of George W. Bush is really like has a moral high ground here. You know what I'm saying? Trump, he cut taxes for the rich and then spent his ass off. He he contributed to the deficit more than just fucking Joe Biden has by now. It's insane. Right, so to pretend that Trump is somehow a conservative by any stretch of the imagination is 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 moronic. He, in rhetoric here and there, but he hasn't really delivered. And and with what he's done with Project Warp Speed and his response to COVID, it was awful. He did a terrible job. Um, so we have to acknowledge that and think, okay, well, let's just look outside of partisanship and view this through the lens of principle. So we've had this question here about spending and the deficit. Um, so let's just jump right into it. We'll get into uh, Robert F. Kennedy discussing fiscal responsibility. 
as you say, I think the, the debt is now $32 trillion. Uh, the GDP, our GDP is around $25 uh, trillion. So that is, that's just a really alarming ratio. I, if you look at why, you know, the, the primary cause are our military expenditures. It, we're spending eight uh, this year, I think, uh, $8.4 uh, $8. trillion on the military budget this year. Um, but if you throw in the Homeland Security and all the surveillance and security expenditures at home, it's $1.1 trillion a year. So that's $1.1 trillion a year that is attributable to, to essentially to our, our you know, warmongering. And I don't think we can afford to be policemen of the world anymore. We have 800 bases around the world. We need to start rebuilding our middle class at home. We need to be responsible with our debt. And we need, my grandfather always said, uh, we should make America uh, too expensive to conquer. We should make Fortress America. We should arm America to the teeth at home so that no, so we're too expensive to conquer. And then we should concentrate on building up our economic power and a robust middle class. That's what's going to make America strong. And instead of uh, projecting military strength abroad, we ought to be projecting our economic strength and a marketplace of ideas and economic power. I, I you know, right now we're borrowing six, uh, $6 billion a day, mainly from the Chinese and Japanese, just to serve the interests on that debt. That's not a healthy thing for America to be. And we got to figure out, you know, a way to uh, impose fiscal discipline. But I can't tell you exactly what my boundaries would be. Uh, that's something I need to think about. But how do you how do you think about that? So we got there. Now, as we look at this, like one thing I do appreciate about RFK is that he's like, hey, you know, that's not something I, I need to know more about that. I need to research more about that. I, I actually respect that. You would think that these people need to have all the answers. I don't think so. And even the, the answer that he did give there was very coherent and a majority position. If you play that, if you put that quote out, and don't attribute it to anybody, and poll the United States, right, everyone, and say, do you agree with this? You've got to think that's going to come back as a majority in, majoritarian position, that we need to quit projecting strength abroad, focus on our economy at home. And this is the thing, too. This isn't, a, this isn't anti-military innovation, anti-military spending. We need to be so well defended, right? We call it the defense, Department of Defense now, which really is the Department of War, right? Don't want the semantics... Fuck with you here. What we need is stellar, insane defense. So expensive, so unreasonable to conquer or to fuck with that we give the, ourselves the ability to focus on our economy. And what does he say there? The middle class. A robust, healthy, strong middle class in this country. Now, who was the last president to actually deliver on something like that? Trump talked about it, didn't do it. Bush just started fucking wars. Obama talked about hope and change, and he just bailed out the banks and, 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 and transferred wealth upward. Biden and Trump both transfer of wealth upward. That's all we've seen. That's all we've seen. So when we look at this and we think, hey, we're spending this much money, and he, he, he harps so, so hard on this, this, this surveillance state that we've created within our own country, right, and how these intelligence organizations essentially just exist to create conflict to then – bolster the military industrial complex, right? There's so much money, so much fat to be trimmed off of that hog. 
Like there is so much there that could be put back into our economy and, 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 and focused on developing a robust middle class and giving people the opportunity for upward mobility. That is so huge. When you feel like there is nowhere for you to go financially, economically, you can't, a house is unattainable. You've seen the rates. So what is it? Uh, the average housing, house price is five times the average household income. It's absurd. I think it used to be one time or one and a half times. That's, that, 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 that wasn't that long ago. That was in the 70s. So when you look at this whole thing, you think our middle class has been gutted. That is why Donald Trump was so well-received in those communities. He spoke to them in a rhetoric. His policy did not, but in rhetoric he did. It's a great position to be in. It's a majoritarian position. This is what people want. And we'll, and you'll see people on the, the CIA-backed media saying, well, this is isolationist. This is How are we going to spread, spread, spread democracy abroad? All this other bullshit. And no one wants to have the conversation of like, hey, we aren't in the position to do that. We are not, as a country, we do not have the standing to police the world. We do not need 800 military bases around the world. You know, I understand that this guy is a Democrat, but that's one of the most fiscally responsible statements I've heard come out of a candidate's mouth in my lifetime. And that has nothing to do with partisanship. That's just common sense. That's absolute common sense. That's why I wanted to bring that up here. Like that makes, we're talking about trillions of dollars here that can be saved. Trillions over time. And what he also talks about with these intelligence agencies being restructured in a way that is more efficient and more practical. I mean, when's the last time that the FBI foiled a plot that they didn't plan? Do we even know? It's absurd. It's become, it's, become a, it's become a joke. But it all comes down to the fact that we, as a country, don't have something envious at rise of now. Right? We don't have a robust middle class. We don't have, people, we don't have a booming economy in the same way we did. We've had massive transfers of wealth upward. And yeah, there are, on average, more rich people. And there's way, way, way more poor, poor people, people living under the poverty line, people just barely being able to get by. That's not the environment of a country that has the standing to police the world. So we need to focus on ourselves, get our shit right, and of course, stay so well defended that we are impossible to overthrow or attack or fuck with in any way. It makes too much sense. makes too much sense. Let's get to this next clip here. This is about the COVID response. So let's dive into this and in in, in vaccines as well. Kind of, I think, bigger framing question for you, Robert, is really around vaccines in general. I think your your commentary around the, the COVID response and, uh, you know, the influencing forces there didn't start with COVID, right? I mean, you, you've, you've been a, a kind of, you know, outspoken voice on vaccines in general for some time. Is that a fair statement? Because I think that that's part of the media narrative around your history and legacy is that you have been kind of outspoken on vaccines and the, you know, the the risks and the and the effects that you that you consider to be kind of, I don't know if it's implied or explicit with respect to the use and, and wide adoption of, of vaccines over time. Maybe you could share a little bit about your broader perspective in the years leading up to COVID and how that then kind of informed your point of view specifically on COVID. You know, my objective is not to vaccinate. I'm not anti-vax. I'm, I'm fully vaccinated. Okay. My kids were fully vaccinated. Um, I wish at this point that I had not done that because I know enough about them now. But 
My principal objective is that vaccines, um, in the, the childhood vaccines, are immune from pre-licensing safety testing. Of the 72, when I, got, I was a kid, I got three vaccines. My children got 72 doses of 16 vaccines. And the vaccines are uh, the one medical product that does not have to go through uh, placebo-controlled trials where you test an exposed versus unexposed population prior to licensure. And that there's a number of historical reasons for that that come out of the kind of military uh, beginnings. The, these vaccines were regarded as, um, as national security defenses against uh, biological attacks on our country. So they wanted to make sure if the Russians attacked us with anthrax uh, or some other biological agent, they could quickly formulate and deploy a vaccine to 200 million Americans with no regulatory impediments. So they they called them biologics rather than medicines and exempted biologics from pre-licensing safety trials. I've litigated on the issue. Not one of them has ever been tested pre-licensed or against. So nobody knows what the, you know, you can say that the vaccine is effective against the target disease, but you can't say that it's not causing worse problems. Now, I'll just summarize this story. In the, the vaccine schedule exploded in 1986, the vaccine industry succeeded in getting Ronald Reagan to sign a law. And my uncle was also, you know, a group that was pressured um, by Wyeth, which was losing $20 in downstream liabilities on every vaccine it made because of lawsuits for every dollar that it made. And they, in, in profits, they went to Reagan and said, oh, we're going to get out of the vaccine business and you're going to be left without a vaccine supply unless you give us full immunity from liability. And Reagan you know, reluctantly signed that. And so today, no matter how uh, negligent the company, no matter how grievous your injury, no matter how reckless their conduct, you cannot sue them. That caused a gold rush because now you've got a product that there's no downstream liability. You're immune from that. There's no upstream safety testing. So that's a $250 million saving. And there's no marketing or advertising costs so because uh, the federal government is going to mandate this product to 76 million American children, whether they like it or not. And there's no better product in the world. And so there was a gold rush. And instead of three vaccines, we quickly ended up with 72. And now we're going to, you know, toward 80 right now. And there's no end in sight. And a lot of those vaccines were unnecessary. They're not even for casual disease caused diseases. Here's what happened in night beginning in 1989. We experienced a chronic disease epidemic in this country. It is unlike anything in human history. We went from having 6% of Americans affected by chronic disease to 54% by 2006. And what do I mean by chronic disease? I mean neurological disease that I never saw when I was a kid. ADD, ADHD, speech delay, language delay, tics, Tourette syndrome, um, ASD, autism, narcolepsy, all of these suddenly appeared. Autism rates went from one in 10,000 to one in every 34. 1989 was the year this began. Allergic disease, peanut allergies suddenly appeared. Um, food allergies, eczema suddenly appeared. Uh, anaphylaxis and asthma, you know, which had been around but it exploded. And then autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and juvenile diabetes. Um, I never knew a kid. I had 11 siblings, about 70 cousins. 
I never knew anybody with any of these diseases. And suddenly, why do five of my kids have allergies? So, uh, so then, if you look at the manufacturer's inserts for those 72 vaccines, there's 420 diseases that have been associated with the vaccines that are listed, including every one of those diseases that went epidemic in 1989. And this is the country which is the most heavily vaccinated, and this was happening here unlike any other country in the world. And so we have this, you know, this, and, and you know, it's good for the pharma, because pharma now makes $60 billion on the vaccines. When I was a kid, they were making $250 million. Now they make $60 billion a year, plus $100 billion from COVID vaccine. Freeberg, do you believe that these vaccines are over-prescribed and are part of the rise in ADHD and, and all this litany of diseases. I'm just asking Friedberg, who's our resident scientist here, do you, do you believe this, you know, explicitly as a scientist? I'm curious. I don't think there's direct evidence supporting <laughs> that relationship. I think that there's a lot of environmental factors that have been driving changes in, you know, the rate of uh, problems with autoimmunity. It relates to our food product, products, our food system. It relates to environmental chemistry, like Robert has talked about generally. I think there's a lot of environmental conditioning that's caused this rise in, in, in problems in human Can health. Can I interrupt for a second? Because yeah. I, I don't think it's solely the vaccines. Our children today are swimming around in a toxic zoo. Uh, but there's a timeline. And actually, a, a toxicologist that I've used in many of my lawsuits, probably the most famous in the country, Phil Landrigan, looked at the timeline of the explosion of all these chronic diseases. And he said, uh, there's only a finite number of things that have caused it. You know, one is glyphosate, things that went, became ubiquitous against in every demographic beginning in, around 1993, 1989. Um, one of them is glyphosate, neonicotinoid, uh, pesticides, PFOAs, cell phones, ultrasound, and he made the whole list. Um, uh, and so it's a finite number. And the question is, and vaccines are, are part of that. And, you know, it is suspicious because the vaccines list all of these as side effects. Now, I've I've put together books, you know, one of my books on this subject, on connecting these as 1,400 references and 400 studies digested. So the, the science out there is pretty clear. But... We, this NIH refuses to study these things because it knows that whatever, wherever they follow the dots, it's going to end up with a big shot. And so they simply have stopped studying them and they've turned themselves into an incubator for pharmaceutical products and they don't do this kind of basic research. I want to just give you guys one example. The most common vaccine in the world is called the DTP vaccine, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. We gave it in this country and beginning around 79. It was killing or uh, uh, causing severe brain injury in one out of every 300 kids who got it. UCLA study funded by NIH that found it, so they got rid of it. That's what caused all the lawsuits that eventually precipitated the passage of the vaccine. We stopped it here. They stopped it in Europe. But Bill Gates and WHO are still giving it to 161 million African children every year. It's the most popular vaccine on earth. Bill Gates says publicly it saved 30 million lives. 
he went to the Danish government and said, we've saved 30 million lives. Will you support this program? In 2017, the Danish said, show me the study that shows that it saved all those lives. He couldn't do it. So they went down and they conducted a study in West Africa where the Danes operate all these health clinics. And they looked at 30 years of data. And as it turned out, in a nation called Guinea-Bissau, half the kids in that country at the age of two months had received the vaccine and half had not. It was a perfect natural experiment. And they looked at 30 years of data. And what they found was that the kids who received the vaccine were not dying of diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. But girls who received the vaccine were dying at 10 times the rate of unvaccinated girls. And they were not dying of anything ever, anybody ever associated with the vaccine. They were dying of, of uh, bilharzia, malaria, anemia, uh, minor cuts and scrapes, and mainly pulmonary respiratory disease and, and pneumonia. And what the researchers concluded, and this was a, a study funded by the Danish government, and Novo Nordisk, which is a vaccine company, and the scientists were all pro-vaccine. What they said is this vaccine is killing more people than the disease ever were. Nobody knew it because nobody associated the people who were dying because they were dying of all these different things. How were only the unvaccinated kids? So the vaccine had saved them from diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, but it had ruined their immune system so that they could not defend themselves against other diseases. And that's the danger of not having placebo-controlled trials prior to introducing the product, particularly when you're going to mandate a product for healthy people. So let's talk about that. I played that whole segment there because I wanted to get Friedberg's feed, uh, feedback on that as well because you got to hear other views, right? One, Friedberg had no real rebuttal. He said there's a, you know, and, and RFK agreed with him that kids are swimming around in some toxic soup, which that's the thing. It's like, it may not be just vaccines. Maybe it is vaccines. Maybe it's uh, glyphosate, which is also in high fructose corn syrup, which has became uh, the most commonly used form of sugar in the eighties as well. That's something I studied in college. Um, that's what really got me onto this kind of like regulatory capture uh, corruption bandwagon that I've started to understand at that point, looking at our food industry and how it was set up for people to fail and be sick and fat and, and, and be forever consumers. Right. But when you look at this and you got to think like, well, the NIH, if, if, if these rates have gone up, if these chronic illnesses, um, ADHD, autism, Tourette's, these things have gotten to be where they're really, really common. The national Institute of, of health, should be doing really, really intense and robust studies and putting a lot of focus on those things that are having real world impacts. Instead, you know, they're funding things like gain of function research in case there's some kind of global pandemic. Instead of solving the problems that we have currently right now and finding root causes to those problems and impacting the quality of life for Americans, right? From the National Institute of Health, they're funding coronavirus research. That being said, I had someone come at me on Instagram and I thought this was, you know, this is a common thing you say. It's like, well, explain to me how the world is, is, is better without vaccines, right? That's a lowbrow argument. You hear that a lot. Well, that's not really the point. That's not what we're going for here. We're not trying to eliminate vaccines, right? Now I'm a minimal interventionist when it comes to anything for the most part. So when it came to vaccines, like I'm like, well, we don't need these right now. You don't need to give your kid your infant, a fuck ton of vaccines, in my opinion, right? That's just me, right? But do what you want. 
That being said, this isn't really about whether or not you give kids vaccines. What this is about is transparency and accountability for corporate interests. So my response to that question was, tell me how the world is a better place without transparency and accountability for corporate interests. That's what we're arguing for here. What we want is to make sure that what we're giving our children and taking ourselves, what we're putting in our bodies is safe, right? That's what we're asking for here. This is not, it was anything that he had to say right there. This is going to be the biggest anti-vax this, anti-vax that. Is anything that he said right there unreasonable? That's the question. If you have doubts, look at it. Is that unreasonable? $60 billion a year. The incentives line up for corruption. All the hallmarks of corruption exist, right? So we've got to ask ourselves, is anything unreasonable in this? Is there a 1, 10, 50, 100% chance this is, this is accurate? And you got to say, well, why hasn't the NIH been in, in, curious about these chronic diseases? I mean, even autism itself going from 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 35, not that people with, with autism aren't amazing people, but that's a very curious stat. How many people do you know that have autoimmune issues? I'm sure there's several of you on this sh- listening to the show right now that have them or know people that do. I know several people that do. Kind of an absurd amount, to be honest with you. So you have a personal interest in this, right? Now, what other candidate do you know that can have this kind of conversation when it comes to national health? Do you think that this place, this, this country would be a worse place with proper regulations on what we put in and on our bodies? Do you think that the Corporations that served a profit from this would maybe be a little bit more interested in making sure these things don't happen if there was accountability and transparency. That's what we're looking for here. Not to end vaccines, none of that shit. I think people should have the choice to do what they want to do with all the information. And I happen to respect people enough to think they can handle making decisions if they have appropriate information. But we've been pacified and told what to think for so long, that's become the norm. So what we have to do is take back the information, force the information out so that we can make the right decisions for ourselves, for our families, and our communities. Right? We're always going to bring this back to ourselves, our families, and our communities. And to do the right thing, you need the information. And what you do with that is up to you with your freedom But again, no other candidate is talking about this. Joe Biden can't even say the ABCs. An Operation Warp Speed guy probably can't have this kind of dialogue and wouldn't expose himself to this. So moving on here, I just want to do one thing for the culture warriors out there. Let's dive in here. This is um, just one of the the most important questions of our time. Let's get get into it. But I'm curious your take on the issues around Disney, DeSantis, trans, uh, and this cohort of issues which have become an obsession, it seems, between certain members of certain political parties or both parties, the media, and certainly it's taken over a lot of discussions amongst the generation on social media. What's your take on all this? And when you get caught up in these debates and the presidential debates about trans athletes as but one example, do you think a trans woman who was a biological male should be able to be put in a 
female prison, do you think they should be able to play on a female basketball team and change with a bunch of 15-year-old girls in a high school locker room? Uh, I've already said, first of all, I want to say this. I think that people, I believe in bodily autonomy and that people's choices about what they want to do with their body should be respected and people should not be shamed. I do not believe that uh, as somebody who was born a biological man should be able to compete later on in life, whatever choice they made on a woman's team. I mean, I have a, a, a niece who is uh, playing softball at, at BC. She has worked. Uh, she has devoted her entire life to getting that scholarship. And it's, it's consumed her. And I've watched, you know, during my lifetime, women's sports go from essentially non-existent to, to equitable mainly with men's sports. And I think that's important. And I don't think that, you know, um, uh, women should lose ground um, in, in any way. So I would, you know, I've said I'm, I, I don't believe that that's the right thing, but I think everybody should be respected. That's the answer. Everybody should be respected. You have bodily autonomy. Biological males can't play on sports teams and change in locker rooms with the females. Case fucking closed. It's done. If you're an adult, do what you want. Make your own decision about your own body. That's it. <laughs> Thank you. It's that simple. So when we look at this whole thing here, and we've got RFK just doing his thing, being himself here, and you can tell he, even by the way his body language is in this, in this video, like he's just not super like interested in this question, which good. I would like for our president not to be all that interested in this question. Say what you got to say. It's a majoritarian position. What he just said is what most people believe and would like to see happen. That's it. Move on. There's bigger problems. We talk a lot about energy and a lot of other things in this podcast. I highly recommend you go check this out. Uh, give it a listen if you have not had a chance at the All In Podcast. Now, what I've seen in response, I put up a poll, and I was like, just out of curiosity, like, do you think if RFK ran with Tucker, right, Tucker Carlson, who's a free agent at the moment, which would be really interesting. And I just say Tucker because he's kind of become the kind of mainstream voice of the populist uprising. Um, and he seemed to come a long way. I think him getting, as funny as it is, I think him getting off of Fox News would actually make him less conservative, oddly enough, in a good way. I think he would really resonate with people like me and like people that listen to this show out of the Fox News ecosystem. And I'm really curious if apparently he's going to go fight with them uh, as far as what he's able to do now because they still have him in a contract. But we'll see. They're trying to keep him out of the discourse until after the election. So what it seems like. So pretty odd stuff there. But I put that up and I was like, hey, do you think they would win? If they ran independent, right? Because the Democrats are, are circumventing democracy as they tend to do and not giving us the option, telling us what the choice is and hoping that we pick their choice. Um, and they're going to threaten us in several ways if we don't, which will be hilarious to try and see. Um but they don't want to have debates and you can see why like this, even with the, the speech issue that RFK has still much more coherent, astute uh, and more articulate than, than president Trump or uh, president Joe Biden. Both of them are laughable to me. Um, and I understand I have a lot of Trump supporters listen to this. I hope not, this is not, has nothing to do with you. You probably made the best choice for yourself. And I respect that. That being said, I will never not think that Donald Trump is a clown. Now if Robert F. Kennedy was his vice presidential running mate here. You probably get my vote. 
But outside of that, very unlikely. Um, but I want to say this. Like, what other candidate would put himself in this situation or herself in this situation? Marianne Williamson would. And I'd like to see that. I think the all-in crew is going to have her on. As I said, I don't think that she has it right now. Um, I definitely would like to see Marianne in the administration in some capacity. I like Marianne a lot. Uh, that being said, I think she's a little bit too far away from what we need at the moment. Uh, Donald Trump, I do not think he would do this. He'll go on the Nelk Boys podcast or whatever that was with the with those children. Um, but I don't think he'll put himself in a situation like this. And I would love to see him do it. I would be curious if David Sachs can make that happen as a billionaire Republican. But I don't see it happening. Now, I could be wrong, and I hope I am wrong. I'd love to see him in this exact same format, two hours long conversation. It would be fantastic. Joe Biden would not do this at all. The only reason he won is because he was able to hide in the basement during COVID. So we're looking at this and saying like, okay, well, that's, that, that's just a lot about a candidate right there. That's just a lot about a person that's what's worthy of respect right there. They will put themselves in this situation in a long format, unedited, and see what happens. But in that poll, I said, okay, and Tucker would put himself in this situation, of course, but said, what if they ran together? That'd be really interesting, right? You have like a Kennedy Democrat and like a populist Republican on a ticket together. Do you think they would win as they, they ran independent? I happen to think that they would do really well. They would probably force some kind of runoff. I think they would actually beat Joe Biden. If they had, and they would get enough airtime with Tucker's clout to do it. That's what I think. Do they, do I, don't they, I don't know if they would win, but I think it would, be, it would say a lot, and it would mean a lot for getting more diversity of options when it comes to our, our representation. But I see a lot of people saying like, oh, they won't let that happen. They won't let this happen. Blah, 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 blah. They're out they're to get us, all this stuff. All this victim-y bullshit. All this victim-y, defeatist rhetoric. Oh, they won't let this. They won't do this. They won't do that. How are you outsourcing your ability to do anything on them? Whoever the fuck they are, right? They. They will do this. The, the, we understand who they are, kind of. It's mythical deep state that just kind of like pulls the strings of power that does exist, the corporate interests that run our government. We understand that. But if you lose the ability to believe that you can make change, that we can together can get together and fucking make change, if you lose that, that fire, you're exactly where they want you to be. I understand people are like, well, we just need to get away. We need to be anarchists and get away with, do away with the government completely and homestead. And I'm like, okay, talk to me in reality here. Does it benefit us at all to lose faith in our, in our ability to bind together and make change? Now, was that co-opted by Barack Obama? Absolutely. Did Trump speak to that in rhetoric and not deliver on it? Absolutely. But eventually, maybe, right? And I know I sound crazy. I understand that I sound crazy in that, but like we have to believe in that, right? Focus on yourself, your family, and your community. Yes. And also, enough of us together can disrupt this fucked up system. We have to be hungry for that. The complacency of feeling beat down, I understand it. As well as anybody, it's fucked up. But you've got somebody who wants to dismantle the intelligence community that's sucking funds and putting us into endless war. You've got somebody who wants to focus on the middle class. You've got somebody that wants to make sure that, you, that respects you enough 
to want to give you the information, let you make your own choice. Who's a defender of free speech? Who's a defender of civil rights? I understand that it's an uphill battle. I get that. But it's just something I feel I feel strongly about it. And I, I, as someone who spends way too much time looking at this stuff, the motherfucker has a chance. Like a real chance. Bernie Sanders was not pulling at 19% at this point. Shit, Joe Biden wasn't pulling at 19% at this point. Now, he had Barack Obama in his pocket to, to, to pull strings and Pete Buttigieg and all these other people like Beto O'Rourke and Amy Klobuchar that clowned themselves, right? But we know Joe Biden's not going to win, right? Joe Biden might not even make it to the election. That'd be weird. But the support in someone like RFK, you never know what can happen. We've got over a year to get there, right? Almost a year and a half. A lot can happen. So this aligns with their principles and aligns with their values and seems like what could move our country back in the right direction with something more than rhetoric and name-calling, right? And I understand I'm going after Trump a lot, but that's what I, that's, this is, he's a better option. Everything that you guys seem to like about Trump, he embodies as well. But he does it in a way that is more pragmatic, will likely have better results, and is way less flashy because all that shit, Trump loves that attention, guys. He loves it. He soaks it up. He wants that. He doesn't really give a shit about you. And you can see from the, even the demeanor of RFK here, it's not about it. This isn't an attention-seeking effort here. So that's what I have to say about that. I just, God, I feel strongly about this. And I know this is probably more politics than you guys want to get into, but fuck, dude. I just, I, I, yeah, I see something. I see something here, like something in my gut tells me this can happen. But it's not going to happen if we sit here and act defeated. It is, is not, that's not going to work. So moving on here, speaking of health, the Surgeon General popped up and has, um, some really interesting things to say about loneliness. So we said the COVID vaccination requirement to end next week for federal employees. Wow, that's interesting. They're not going to address that, but maybe that requirement was unnecessary and um, unconstitutional and uh, all the other things. They're not going to address that at all. But we'll get into the loneliness, loneliness piece here because it's kind of funny how they dance around that right there. They've got to talk about the, the, the state of emergency ending and all these things, which is about two years too late at least, maybe three. But, yeah, let's continue here. As the White House prepares... As the White House prepares to end the public health emergency brought on by the coronavirus, our next guest says a new health challenge is taking center stage, debilitating levels of loneliness in America. Joining us now to explain, U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy. Dr. Murthy, great to see you. Great to have you. Um, So this is so important. important. Uh, You've got this report out, something that I'm not sure a lot of people appreciate um, how profound the problem is. And the impacts of it, physical, it can be like obesity, it can be like a lack of exercise, it can be like smoking in what it does to your body. So- I'm, pretty, I'm just pretty proud of him for saying obesity there. Like, I'm sure he got some fat shaming tweets after this. Lay out, if you would, just how deep this problem is in America. Well, Willie, I'm so glad we're here talking about this because loneliness is a problem that has existed behind the shadows for too long. And I came to realize this when I first began my tenure as Surgeon General and I traveled the country and would talk to people who would tell me that they were lonely, but they wouldn't use that word. Mm. They would say things like, you know, I feel I have to carry all these burdens in my life by myself, Mm -hmm. or I feel if I disappear tomorrow, 
nobody would care, mm-hmm. or I feel invisible. I don't feel anything. Right. And it turns out that millions of people struggle with loneliness. When you dig into the data, what you find is that about one in two adults in America uh, was reporting levels of loneliness. And these numbers are even greater among kids. But what you also find is that loneliness has serious effects on our mental health and our physical health, raising our risk for depression, anxiety and suicide, but also increasing our risk of heart disease, stroke, dementia and premature death. So what is at the root of this, doctor? I mean, we talked a lot about the phone. We talked about the way technology has changed our lives. I mean, it's a little more insular, even though we're connected in digital ways. As you study the problem, what's what's behind it? Well, that's the right question. And it turns out that this is a problem that has been building for decades. Uh, We have over 40, 50 years seen declining participation in the community organizations that used to bring people together, uh, including service organizations, faith organizations, and others. But we're also seeing that our life has changed dramatically. We move around more, we change jobs more often, and technology has utterly transformed how we interact with one another. Now, look, I'm, tech can be good or bad. It can help us or hurt us. It's how it's designed and how we use it. But what I worry about is that it has too often replaced our in-person connections uh, with lower quality off, you know, online connections. So you can see there that the focus when it comes to loneliness is tech. And while yes, tech has been a big part of this, social media, your phones, uh, screens, 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 lack of in-person connection. I personally take a lot of responsibility on myself to get out and be around people. I'm very extroverted, um, struggled the past, you know, three years just having to be not around people. Like it's, I'm very connection driven as a human being. Um, that's one of the reasons I love coaching so much is cause I can be able to get in and like, just like get sit down and like no phones, talk to somebody, even if it is on a screen and like just get into it and like spend that time dedicated. That's a rare experience for a lot of people. That being said, maybe there was something that all of these people endorsed over the past few years um, that may have thrown gasoline on this fire that, it might be productive and actually add a little bit of confidence in their ability to uh, be honest if they would address and maybe take responsibility for. And I have a quick sample of that right here for you. Social distancing is really physical separation of people. It's what we refer to when we ask people to say at least six feet apart. Not going to bars, not going to restaurants, not going to theaters where there are a lot of people. It all just means physical separation so that you have a space between you and others who might. Wow. I wonder if that helped or hurt the loneliness situation. I wonder if the incessant focus on physical separation for years helped or hurt the loneliness situation. Maybe there was some blowback from this insane overreach that impacted people's lives in a negative way. And maybe the first thing you could do if you want to talk about loneliness and the problems of loneliness is take responsibility for your own part in it. Maybe that would be a little bit more robust when it comes to your ability to, to, to have, for people to have faith in you, right? Like there's, there's a lack of trust in this relationship here and it's not unfounded. Right, Because you're sitting here saying that you have a solution to a problem that you made worse. And I've taken zero responsibility. Now, if you make a problem worse and you say, shit, we fucked up. Maybe we should have done that. But no. No, what you're going to do is deflect responsibility, distract with tech. 
Now, I do remember the tech stocks, as somebody who's interested in the stock market, the tech stocks in this time went through the roof. Zoom, Meta, Facebook at the time, Twitter, even Snapchat probably had a bump. So what were people doing when they were physically separated? Spending a lot of time on their phones, Netflix, spending a lot of time alone. And no, don't go to movies or bars or restaurants because... Somebody who's 400 pounds and has four different co-variables could maybe die. That's, that's, that's the reality that we were faced with for years. Now, that had nothing to do with me or you. And if you felt lonely through that time, like I did, you can probably look at this and be like, wow, how much hubris does it take to not take responsibility for being part of the problem while pretending now to be part of the solution and blaming it on tech? Exclusively. Well, what you did over the past few years was push people more and more into tech. Now, what we could have done at the beginning of, of the thing is uh, said, hey, you know, this could take a long time. The best thing you can do for your, this is the most honest thing you could have said. Most honest thing they could have said. The best thing you can do for yourself is make sure you have people to talk to Make sure you're not spending too much time alone. Move your body. Take this time to get your health right. Here's some comment. We're going to bring somebody in. It's going to stand at this podium with millions of people watching every day. We're going to talk about common sense health things you can do. Eating real food, getting sunshine, being outside. A community is a good part of mental health. Focus on that stuff. And then maybe if you need to get some kind of treatment from the pharmaceutical industry, maybe do that as well, right? And then over the, how much life can change, how much can your life change in a year or two years? That's how long it was, right? Well, they had gyms shut down, shut down parks, filled in skate parks with sand, robbed us of human connection, robbed us of human connection. And now we're in this place where we're completely disillusioned, which is, could be productive, maybe still reeling from that experience, maybe has lingering effects from that experience that are still going on, along with a frustration and confusion on who to even turn to for real information. And the people who threw gasoline on an already existing fire can't even take a responsibility for that part, as if the fire just burned out of control on its own. But how much lifestyle commitment change can you make in a couple of years? It could be absolutely huge, absolutely huge for you. And the people you're around, because that influences the people you're around. You could lose 100 pounds in a year, two years. You can get way healthier in a couple of years. I mean, I see, you know, shit on Instagram. I, I, I do love success stories, so I see them all the time of like, me in 2021, me in 2023. And it's just like, damn, girl, you did it. Or shit, man. You fucking sent it, bro. Like guys that are 350 pounds coming in looking shredded. Stacked up diesel style. Now, not that everybody needs to do that, but you can get your ass outside and go for a walk, be in the sun, get some fresh air, focus on yourself. We could have had those resources, but what was the answer? The answer was the profitable one, as it tends to be. So, just wanted to bring that up because I saw that, that this, when there's a glaring hypocrisy, I have to expose it. And I hope that through that, maybe you see a little bit of like this trend, right? The trend that keeps happening and spot it. 
See, I'm, I was, I feel like I was lucky because in college I was talking about things like the FDA, big food, uh, corruption, regulatory capture. I was doing that when I was 21 years old. So I knew the patterns. I knew what to watch out for and still got fooled in many ways. And I can only imagine what it was like to view that thing having not seen those patterns before. And the feeling of exploitation, distrust, frustration that you have now. So maybe just seeing this and seeing how they're deflecting currently. And the Surgeon General seems like a nice guy. And to be fair, the Surgeon General at this time, um, three years ago, was a different person. But they're all part of the same machine. And so when we look at this, we got to think, all right. Maybe these aren't the people to trust for my health and well-being. <laughs> I know that's a stretch. I know that's a stretch, but the food pyramid people are not the people to trust with your health. Really important. And the funny thing is, it's not that complicated. You know, we talk a lot about environment and, and, and greenhouse gases and carbon. One of the best things we can do is localize agriculture. What if your food came from nearby where you live? Think that would change things a little bit? It would change people's connection to their food, how they eat how they think about things. If it doesn't come from five states away from a meat packing facility that has a, a functioning monopoly on cattle ranchers, keeping their profits low. Do you think that would be a, just a better energetic environment for us to like have food localized? Right? So like maybe it goes from the ranch to the processing place, which is like maybe like across the street and then to like the grocery store. Maybe that should be our focus, you know? Because all these major cities, whether it be like Austin, Chicago, Denver, they have huge areas of agriculture outside of those cities. I have a lot of faith they could be able to feed that city with the surrounding 50 miles. But, but, we're going to go plant-based and rob all those animals that do exist in these environments of their livelihood and their ecosystem. That's what, that's what we're supposed to go with. So you can see how this stuff just does not seem to add up, right? And there's no one, no one, no one taking responsibility for their fuck-ups. So how are you supposed to respect and trust some organization that has zero accountability and zero transparency and gaslights you when their failures become obvious? It's pretty wild. It is pretty, pretty, pretty wild. So... With that being said, it's time for that part of the show where I give you something to think about. Oh, yeah. We've got patterns, baby. We've all got patterns. If you look back, you take a second while you're doing what you're doing and just think about the patterns of your life, the patterns of success, the patterns of failure, the patterns of that have led to frustration and disappointment in oneself. You see them, right? You may have got them from your mama, got them from your daddy. Who knows where they came from? But we all have patterns. What I like to call feedback loops in our lives, right? I was really struck. I read uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck back in the day. And I love that book. It's so easily easy to read, fun to read, uh, make you laugh, make you cry, that kind of whole thing. And he talks about, I believe what he called, Mark Manson called it the hamster wheel of bullshit, right? Like you get, if you have an anger issue, you get angry 
And then you get angry that you're angry, and then you're angrier, and you're just on the hamster wheel of bullshit. Or you have an issue with depression, maybe, and you get depressed, and that doesn't make you want to do anything, and then you get depressed some more, and you're on the hamster wheel of bullshit, right? And that, that stuck with me, and I just always thought about that because I would get in those, like, mostly, like, frustrated. It was a big one for me, just, like, get frustrated and just, like, feel stuck, and that would make me, and then I, it would make me do the things that weren't really productive, and then I'd go, to, it was just this cycle, and I'd be like, fuck, dude, i got to break out of this. And I learned that journaling would do a lot of that for me. It would let me clear the noise and get out. And then I started thinking about, okay, well, those are the fucked up ones, right? Those are the, the hamster wheel of bullshit takes you in the wrong direction or nowhere, really. That's kind of the hamster wheel analogy. So it takes you nowhere, right? You put in a lot of work and you're going nowhere. But what about positive feedback loops? What do those look like, right? How can we infuse those in our lives in a conscious way? Like really put them in there and see. Right? I think that's something we don't do enough is looking like, okay, well, this leads to that, leads to that. Cause and effect in our own lives is so important. So when you think about feedback loops, one of the most impactful ones I've seen in my life, we can talk about more and I talk about more of this when I, when I coach folks and get into this and try to customize these for individuals. But for me, I think the, at the foundation, you've got to be able to ask yourself honest questions and give yourself honest answers. That feedback loop will do more in your life than any other, right? If you can't do that, you're not setting yourself up for success, right? Because here's the thing we need to understand as individuals, as human beings, we do have an inherent bias, this confirmation bias that will tell us what we want to hear. We will tell ourselves what we want to hear more often than not. And that says a lot about us. This is a lot about people, right? And we need to understand that bias, confront that bias, and use that resistance to grow by creating a feedback loop where you, and this is best done to journaling, there's something about it. I even think Huberman's talked about like writing shit down with your hand, not, with, not on a keyboard, with your hands and a pen or a pencil. Getting in the process of asking yourself challenging questions and giving yourself honest answers. And that might start, right, because feedback loops have to start small. With asking yourself simple questions. How was the coffee today? What's the weather like? And you may lead yourself down a little bit of a rabbit hole, being able to ask yourself these questions, interrogating yourself. And you may get to, why am I scared of being successful? That's a big one for me. And instead of being like, well, it's this person's fault, that person's fault, this other thing happened, and this and the excuses, and this other this other excuse happened, and this and this this thing, and then... Say, well, um, but it's all my responsibility, right? (laughs) And then you got to answer that question. And it's a process, these feedback loops, and you can see them in your own life. This doesn't necessarily have to be just for you, but look at this. Like, think about that. Think about the times that you talk yourself out of or into things that you don't necessarily need to do that aren't necessarily productive. One of the questions I ask when I bring people on for coaching is, what are the productive patterns in your life and what are the unproductive patterns of your life and a lot of times you don't think about those you don't, you don't bring awareness to that shit because you're just operating from this default mode network in your brain right that keeps you alive doing the thing moving on but we've got to have that feedback loop that ability that 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 context in order to confront friction in a productive way in our lives productive friction in your life right is helpful 
when you think about this, and if you think about it on the, to the terms of fitness, it's really easy, right? You give yourself friction, the workout, you increase your work capacity. With higher work capacity comes higher fitness. Very tangible, physical body stuff, right? But what about your inner work capacity? What about your emotional work capacity? You have to face friction in those areas as well. And to do that, you've got to build a practice. And when you think about it through the term of feedback loops, like this leads to that, leads to that, leads to this. Sometimes it can help simplify the system because I'll tell you this, you, me, anybody, we're not as complicated as we think we are. At the end of the day, we're pretty fucking simple. So, something to keep in mind, something to rattle around in your dome, something to rattle around in your dome. I said that really fast. Something to think about. (laughs) Oh, Websites coming soon. Coaching programs coming soon. Cannot wait to get back in the game. It's funny to be like a personal development coach when I think that most personal development is bullshit. But hey, that's the life I choose to lead, I guess. Love you guys. Keep your head on straight. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.